As was mentioned earlier, tonight is our monthly question and answer session, and we do have some questions to look at tonight, some fun ones and some challenging ones, and so we're looking forward to doing that together. Jesus loved to teach through questions, both through answering questions and through asking them, and so hopefully these Sunday nights where we can do this, we can do what I like to call biblical sparring as we kind of help each other sharpen our biblical senses and to rightly handle the word of truth. When we do these questions and answers, this isn't really to lay down any Church of Christ doctrine or to tell individuals what to think. The goal of questions and answers, as far as I'm concerned, is to speak where the Bible speaks and where God has left room for judgment or difference of opinion for us to love one another in harmony and think the best of each other and allow each other to enjoy the liberty that Jesus died for us to enjoy. And so let's begin. We have four questions tonight. Number one. What about the innocent party in Matthew 19 and verse 9? If you have your New Testament, go ahead and turn to Matthew 19 for this first question. What about the innocent party in Matthew 19 and in verse 9? In the beginning, when Adam was alone, Genesis 2 and verse 18 says that it wasn't good for him to be in that condition. And so God made help me one suitable for him. That's Eve. And it's always been God's design. For marriage to be one man and one woman for life throughout the duration of their lives for those two individuals to make it together in the marital union. Genesis 2, 18 through 25 is the pristine picture of what God desires for every marriage. We're told later on in scripture, Malachi 2, 16, that God hates putting away. He desires that individuals are not divorced. And Paul echoes this idea of remaining with your spouse throughout the duration of your married lives. First Corinthians 7, 10 and 11. But when we get to Matthew 19, Beginning in verse one, Jesus had come over there, passed through Judea and Jordan after he finished teaching. And then individuals were healed by him. They were listening to what he was saying. But then in verse three, the Pharisees have a question for Jesus about divorce. And they want to know, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for every cause? And Jesus drives back in verses four through six to Genesis two, 18 through 24. And he says, have you not read that he which made them at the beginning, made them male and female and said for this cause, A man will leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two of them will be one flesh. What God has joined together, let not man separate. And that's what Jesus wanted to emphasize. It's interesting. The Pharisees wanted to talk about divorce, and Jesus wanted to talk to them about marriage. And so then they introduced their real issue in verse 7. If the case be so, why did Moses give us a right to divorce our wives? And what they're referring to is a passage in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, where Moses does not command divorce, but he biblically legislates a pa- uh, activity that was already taking place. And Moses says in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, that if you put away your spouse, you must give her a writing of divorcement. And if she remarries and her husband dies, you are not at liberty to take her up again and remarry her. But Jesus says in verse 8 of Matthew 19, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, allowed you to put away your wife. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, verse nine, here's our verse. Whosoever divorces his wife, except it be for the cause of fornication or sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Marries her, which is put away, does commit adultery. And when they were alone, the disciples said, if the case be so with a man and his wife, it's good not to marry. And Jesus says, all men cannot receive this saying except the one to whom it is given. Some individuals are made eunuchs by birth, some for the kingdom of men and some for the kingdom of heaven. The one who is able to receive it, let him receive it. When Jesus says, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses suffered you to put away your wives, but it's not so now. He then says in verse nine, the only 
way to sever a marriage with God's approval. There's one exception, and it's in Matthew 19 and verse 9. In the case of fornication or adultery, one spouse can put away another. He says the same thing in Matthew 5, 31 through 32. If you don't have a cross reference to that verse, you might write your own in the margin. But Jesus says that same thing in Matthew 5, 31 through 32. And that's what his law is on marriage. And when the disciples say, then we should just be eunuchs if this is the case. This teaching is so difficult. Jesus says not everyone can handle what you just said about being eunuchs. But sometimes individuals choose that and they can innocent party in this question would be the person who is not guilty of the adultery or the fornication in this marriage. The one that would be guilty would be at risk of being put away by their spouse. But the innocent party, based on what Jesus says, there's one exception under which a marriage can be severed and individuals can go their separate ways. It's inherent in what he says in Matthew 19, 9. If you divorce for any other cause besides fornication... That new union would be described as an adulterous one without God's approval. But there is a situation where two spouses, where one spouse can put away another and be remarried with God's approval. And it's inherent in what Jesus says here. Except it be for the cause of fornication means that if fornication is the cause and you do and remarry, then you have God's approval. Based on this text, Jesus says that the innocent party can remarry. They can remarry one of three people. Number one, they can remarry someone who's never been married before, who's eligible in God's sight. They can remarry someone who's in a similar situation to them, who has put away a spouse as the as they were the innocent party. They put away the offender of adultery or in the third place, they can marry someone who has been a widow. And so the innocent party has the right, based on what God says in this passage, to remarry teaches something else. And we need to capture this based on what we see in Matthew 19 to appreciate Jesus's words in the context in which he said them. And that is this. This is a hard thing. It's what the disciples said as soon as they received this teaching. And it's still a hard saying. Now, in fact, it's one of the hardest in the New Testament. But appreciate that they asked Jesus about divorce. What Jesus says is in the case of sexual immorality, divorce by the innocent party is permissible, but it's not commanded. The innocent party, as it relates to the subject of sexual immorality, so their spouse cheats on them, has three options, biblically speaking. Number one, the innocent party can choose to both forgive and reconcile the offender. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. They can forgive and reconcile if they so choose. That's option number one for the innocent party. Option number two is to put away the guilty offender and remarry Matthew 19 and verse nine. Jesus says you can. The only thing that would be only way you could do that lawfully is if your spouse committed adultery. They could in the second place put the spouse away and remarry. And then the third option that the innocent party has is to put away the guilty offender and remain single throughout the duration of their lives. Paul said, at least concerning the present distress in Corinth and first Corinthians seven, six, I wish that all men were like me single. And then in chapter seven, thirty two through thirty five, he says there's even an advantage to being a single Christian because you can focus solely on the things of the Lord. That's the option that the innocent party has. And so as we bring this answer to a close, we do need to teach what the Bible says on this subject. Jesus teaches it. We don't need to shy away from it. It's a difficult one. We need to be delicate and loving and compassionate, but we need to teach it. But we also do ourselves a favor on this subject 
when we teach long before we get to a Matthew 19, 9 situation, God honoring and faithful marriage and love that God wants us to have in our marriages so that we don't get to a Matthew 19, 9 situation. Because in the end, the way to prevent divorce for any cause, as the Pharisees ask in Matthew 19 and verse 3, is individuals who love God, love one another and want to glorify him throughout their lives. Jesus says a man and a woman are supposed to be together for life. But the innocent party does have a liberty that God allows them to exercise if they so choose. Question number two. I told you these are going to be fun tonight. The question is, can we sing spiritual songs with instrumental music outside of worship for the sake of the slide? I had to abbreviate it, but let me give you the whole scope of the question. The question went something like this, and there were two of these. Can we listen to songs that are instrumental in accompaniment with even a gospel centered or spiritual background when we're not in worship. And what if I'm at a wedding or I'm at a funeral or something like that and I don't have an earbuds or I'm by myself or I'm with family and friends and we're not in a worship setting. Is it right or can I do this? Can I worship God acceptably or not worship God? But can I offer up these songs and sing them without it being worship and it be OK? Or do I violate scripture in these instances? Every word of this question is important. And as we go through this question, I just want you to turn to some of these passages, maybe, and let's think through them. And so Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16, both are passages that govern our singing when we offer up worship to God as it relates to music in the New Testament. Ephesians 5.19 says, speaking to yourselves in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. And the sister passage in Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And then there's James 5.13. If anyone among you is happy or merry, let him sing. Those passages, Ephesians 5.19, Colossians 3.16, and James 5.13, govern our worship in song as we sing together. And we don't have God's permission or liberty to add to that as it relates to worship. Acts 15 and verse 24 at the Jerusalem conference when some were saying, hey, if you want to be approved with God, you have to be circumcised. The apostles said they went beyond us and they started to teach things that we did not instruct them to teach. And so we can't add to what the apostles have said. And as it relates to our worship in song, we don't have God's permission to add to it. Whatever we do in word or deed, we have to do it with God's authority. Colossians 3.17 and what we see prescribed in worship. And I want to emphasize that what we see prescribed as it relates to worship is acapella singing. And that means whenever we intend to worship, if it will be accepted and God approved, it has to be done this way. So that also would include Sunday morning worship assembly. Wednesday night, when we're gathered together and we offer up songs before we go into the teaching or instruction portion through the word, that would be the same. And it would cover devos and grub nights and camp. Whenever we get together to worship God, these are the passages that govern our singing. I don't know if I'll be able to see it from here, but you will. The Greek word most often translated as worship is proskuneo. This is the word that you John 4, 23 and 24 is what you find in Luke 24, 52, when they bow at Jesus's feet after the resurrection. And this is what it means. Worship means to express an attitude or gesture, one's complete dependence on or submission to a high authority figure. It means to fall down into worship, to do obeisance, to prostrate. That's to lay out oneself before or do reverence to to welcome respectfully. And that's from BDAG, the most popular or best Greek dictionary that we have to date. 
And that definition is important because what proskuneo is, what worship is, is something that can't be done accidentally. You couldn't attempt to work. Well, I didn't know I was worshiping and I just proskuneo says you intend to you say now this is deity and I want to offer up my best. I want to show my worship is where the old English word worship comes from worship to attribute worth to someone. You couldn't do it accidentally. And so now back to our question. Every time someone listens to music that may be religious in thrust that has instrumental music accompanying it doesn't mean that the person listening to it intends to worship. It may very well be the case that the individual that's listening to that music is merely listening to it for their own edification. Philippians four and verse eight says we must meditate on things that are true, honest, just, pure, lovely and of good report. And that may very well be a part of that. Somebody says, wait a minute, preacher. We can't ever sing spiritual songs without thinking of worship things. I can't even say how great thou art without. And you say, what did you just say? I can't even say how great thou art without thinking about worship. Well, Here's the reality. Ephesians 5:19 and Colossians 3:16 govern our singing in worship. But if an individual doesn't intend to worship, then there's no violation. This will be true of other aspects of our worship as well. The bread and the fruit of the vine. We could eat bread unleavened. We could drink grape juice outside of the worship assemblies, even in the very containers that we do consume them in here. It may not be the wisest thing, but I just mean to say those elements only take on the aspect of worship when we intend them to. A preacher may be studying his lesson in preparation for. In those times when he's studying in preparation, that wouldn't be called worship. He would be preparing for that very event, but it wouldn't be worship. We might gather some young men in here and say, listen, in preparation for lads to leaders, we want you to learn how to pass out the trays for the Lord's Supper, giving or how to lead a prayer. It wouldn't be worship in that occasion. It would be teaching. It would be instruction, but it would be worship. In Matthew 6, 9 through 13, when Jesus taught what we call the model prayer, he was not praying to God. Neither was he blaspheming, but he was teaching those individuals something. And it had another an avenue of worship or an act of worship, as we normally describe it had another element to it that didn't violate the will or the word of God. And so we can't assume that, well, somebody says, well, I well, listen, Ephesians 519 and Colossians 316 govern times when we intend to worship. And so there may be occasions when individuals are listening to religious music with a gospel centered theme or those types of ideas, hymns that we sing in our hymn books, and it has instrumental music accompanying it. But if they do not intend to worship God, remember proscuneo, you couldn't do this accidentally. If they don't intend to worship God, there's no violation. Now, here's the last part of this. Everybody cannot receive what we just said. Some individuals conscience are sensitive to this matter. And this has been a question for Christians for a long time. And my admonition to the person that says, Hiram, I can't do what you just said. I can't sing I'll fly away or hear it with instruments in the background without worshiping God. My admonition to the individual in that scenario would be when in doubt, don't. And that's a biblical admonition. In Romans 14, 23, Paul talks about this meat and individuals who can't eat meat and they would rather not. Paul says he that eats. He that doubts is condemned if he eats because he doesn't eat from faith. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Never violate your conscience. If you can't do that, then you shouldn't. But you also don't get to hold the conscience hostage of other individuals. It's their liberty and freedom to do so. And to those on the other side of this who say, well, I can do that. We must never take our liberty and trample among our, on our brethren who may not see this the same way. 
message that was read into our hearing tonight, turn to Romans 14. Romans 14, and let's notice just briefly what Paul says in verses 15 through 19. Because Paul gives principles that will help us not only with this question, but also in other questions like it. And what Paul's driving at is this. The goal in the church of Christ is harmony among God's people. And so in verse 15, he says, don't destroy the brother for who Christ died. Do you see it? In verse 16, he says, don't let your good, your freedom be evil spoken of. You don't want to harm a brother. Verse 17, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And in verse 18, ultimately, the goal is to serve and be pleasing to God. Paul says we're to do things in a harmonious spirit and consider our brethren. And so on this topic, we shouldn't assume, well, everybody's good with doing this. And somebody comes to our house and we have this blaring or they get in our car. We should be sensitive to the conscience of our brethren And not cause them to stumble because they very well might on this issue. But at the same time, we can't go further than scripture does. And we have to be honest enough with the text to preserve ancient words. And what the text governs is our worship and song. We may have opportunities on occasion. And the only reason why I'm addressing this is because it was in the question. It's not up there on the screen. But this was a part of the question. We may have opportunities on occasions. Think weddings. Think funerals. When those close to us that we love that may not share our religious convictions are among us and in our presence, we may have a rare and unique opportunity in those, on those occasions to show them what New Testament Christianity is all about. What I'm about to say is not a law, but it's a principle that I want to suggest to you for further reflection. In those instances, we might do well to sing a cappella in order to introduce people who for the first and some maybe for their only time in their lives have an opportunity to see New Testament Christianity as its practice. They may be thinking spiritually minded and associate everything with those events on that occasion with Christianity. And we would do well to capitalize on those opportunities. Colossians four and verse five says, walk in wisdom to outsiders, making the most of the time. You know, when non-Christians come in a building like this one, their minds think worship and spiritual. And they may assume that everything done in that moment is worship. And so my admonition or at least a word of thought to all of us is think through it. This is a challenging question. And there may be there's some area of judgment for sure. And so I wrestled with this question difficult for a long long time. I thought it was a difficult one and one that I wanted to be sure to try to work just right. I leaned on Neil a lot for this. All of the wisdom in this question is from the word of God and from him. And all of the folly is mine. I'll take that. But in order to navigate questions like this, we have to walk in love. We have to seek the good of our neighbor above our own. We have to think the best of other individuals and don't assume the worst. And make our chief aim and goal to glorify God and be in submission to his word as it relates to worship. If you ever intend to worship, even in the car on your own, acapella singing is what the New Testament says. But are there other occasions when I'm seeking edification or entertainment for my own purposes where I can listen to songs that do have a religious background and flavor without violating those passages? If we're going to be honest with the New Testament, the answer to that question is yes. Now, here's number three tonight. How does God answer prayer, especially when we pray fervently and God does not grant our request? Yeah, God does not grant our request. To you that hears prayer, will all flesh come? Psalm 65 and verse two. If we ask anything in prayer, 
we know he hears us and we have the petitions of the one we desire because we keep his commandments and do his pleasing in his sight. First John three twenty two. This is the confidence we have in him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. First John five and verse 14. If any man like wisdom, let him ask from God who gives to all men freely and does not upbraid or reproach and it will be given to him. Jesus says, ask and you'll receive. Seek, you'll find. Knock, the door will be open. Everyone that asks receives. And he that seeks finds. The one that knocks, the door that is open. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those that ask him? And with all of those passages, every child of God knows the frustration and the disappointment of asking God for something in prayer that we believe and hope is according to his will only to have our requests denied. How do we harmonize that reality? What we should think about on questions like this is fight against the temptation to take the passages that say that God hears and answers prayer, which is true. And read those passages in isolation of everything else that the Bible says. God hears and answers prayer. He always answers. He gives three. God says yes. God says no. Sometimes God says wait. Think about individuals in Scripture who had their prayers answered and some who had their prayers denied. In Acts chapter 12, both Peter and James are in prison. Acts chapter 12, verse 4 says that they were offering up prayer for Peter. And when Peter's released from prison, Acts chapter 12 and verse 12, they're in Mary's house and they're offering up prayers for him. Moments before, in Acts 12 and verse 2, James was beheaded and killed. It would be right to assume that the same Christians that were praying for Peter's release were also praying for James's release as well. And yet he didn't make it out alive. What we know is true is that God did not love Peter more than James. And yet the prayers on behalf of Peter were answered and evidently the ones on behalf of James were not. In Philippians 2, Paul said he had a good friend, Epaphroditus. And he said Epaphroditus was sick near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on Epaphroditus, but Paul says also on me, because if he would have died, my sorrow would have been compounded. And yet at the end of Paul's life in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 20, he said he had a friend named Trophimus who he left at Miletus sick. He didn't get well. Paul was not allowed to use the miraculous to circumvent his illness. There he laid. Sometimes God answers our prayers in the affirmative and God says your request is granted. And sometimes we don't get what we want and that frustrates us and we're disappointed because we assume that what we think is best, he should think is best. But if we know God, we know three things about him that mean all the world to this question. We know that God is good. Nahum 1 and verse 7 says God is good. We know that God always does what is right. Psalm 25 and verse 8. And we know that God loves us. First John four and verse 19. If we have been astounded and we all have at the goodness of God that has flooded our lives, even when we felt like we didn't deserve it, we must also trust him in those times when God says no. And it seems like his light and his goodness is hidden and we can't see it. And we're begging and praying and we would wish him to answer the way that we want. And yet he doesn't. In those moments, we must remember we're praying to the very same God. Paul prayed a lot. And a lot of times Paul's prayers were answered in the affirmative. But when he received the thorn in the flesh, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 and 8, he prayed three times and three times in a row. God says, no, no, absolutely not. And then he gives Paul the reason because my strength is made perfect in weakness. I can make more of you, Paul, with the no than I can with the yes. It's really in your best interest that this prayer be denied. And so it was. And Paul was able to go on and serve. I don't know all the reasons why God sometimes says yes and why God sometimes says no, 
but I know he does all things well. There are some best practices on this question before we go to number four that I just want us to sort of tuck away. If you're taking notes, you might want to write these points down or think through these. If God says no, when God says no, here are some things to keep in mind. Number one, when God says no, it may not. It's most likely not because you didn't pray enough stuff or pray with the right formula or there's some hidden sin in the crevice of your heart that has kept God from answering this request for you or in behalf of a loved one. We are not serving a pagan deity. God does not treat his children that way. It's not. Well, if I would have said the right words and the right formula, or if I would have prayed more, God doesn't operate that way. And so it's important that we don't view him that way. The second thing, beware of trying to parse out all of the reasons why God has said no. We might have our guesses. We might have our thoughts. But beware of speaking where God has not spoken. Here's what I mean. And especially when people are suffering. We may mean well, but we may say things that pour salt in individuals wounds. Oh, you know, God needed her. Oh, you know, God needed another angel. It's better for them now. And while we may mean well, Job's friends were at their best when they were silent for seven days and sat with the hurting. Job 2, 11 through 13. When God has said something, that's fine. But when God has not, it is a dangerous thing to put words in the mouth of God. And the third thing we should keep in mind is that the goodness of God must not be discounted in the darkness of our days. God can handle your anger. He can handle your frustrations and even your questions. See the book of Psalms. But we must never turn our back on him when we don't get what we want. We must trust that he knows best and he does all things well. On the world's darkest night, the most righteous man who ever took on human flesh prayed the most fervent prayer that we ever have record of him praying. Luke 22, 39 through 44 says Jesus was praying earnestly. His sweat was so fervent, it was like drops of blood. He was in agony. They had never seen Jesus like this. Hebrews 5 and verse 7 says he was offering up prayers and supplication with strong crying. Do you get the scene? Luke and Mark tell us he was stretched out, sweating, crying, pouring out his heart to God. He offered up prayer to the one that could hear him and save him from death. And he was heard because of his godly reverence. Hebrews five and verse seven. If it be possible, if there's any other way, save me from this hour. And in that moment, the one who did everything right, he never did a sin. If there was anyone who could say, God, I deserve to have my prayer heard and answered. I've never disobeyed you. I've done everything right. In that moment, God gave the world the best no in the world so that he could give our souls the yes We deeply need and yearn for that might not solve it for you. But what it does mean is this. At least we have one occurrence where we know for certain that God saying no was actually the best. And maybe it is the case that there are sometimes in our lives unaware of us that the very same thing is true. But this is what we do know. Based on what happened with Jesus in Gethsemane, God has been good to us. And if you scan the prayer life of your Christian life throughout the world, throughout the history of your life, You know, he said yes more than he's denied and he's granted more than we deserved. And because of that, he deserves to be praised even in the storm. The fourth and final question tonight surrounds the invitation. Where do we get this practice that we call the invitation or going forward? Where did it begin and what is its purpose? 
Jesus gave an invitation in Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. I'm meek and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's Jesus's invitation for disciples to come to him and take his yoke on them. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. But we will not find the words while we stand and sing in the New Testament. They're just not there. In fact, every sermon in the book of Acts is interrupted by the listeners. Acts 2, 37, men and brethren, what shall we do? The Ethiopian eunuch says, see, here's water. What stops me from being baptized? And the Philippian jailer says the same thing in Acts 16, 30 and 31. This idea of extending an invitation, it's not in the New Testament. And so the way to rightly describe it is as our tradition. It's not a bad one. It's just a tradition. The question also had in it, the one that was printed out and given to me was, is this similar to the altar call? An altar call is a denominational practice that began with the revivalists in the 1830s and really began to grow in the 1900s. As far as it relates to invitations in churches of Christ, there have been a lot of answers given. I found nothing conclusive on it. If you have, I'd be interested in seeing it. But what I found is it began in tent meetings. As these invitations would be extended and large groups of people in mass would respond that night to the preaching and be baptized. And so our tradition of extending, extending an invitation at the end of a lesson is not a bad thing. It's not in the Bible, but the word Bible is not in the Bible. That doesn't mean that it's, un, it's wrong or unscriptural. It just means it's our tradition. It may be good. It may be helpful. But that doesn't mean it's sacred. There are several things going on when we extend an invitation. And maybe some things for us to think about. Extending an invitation at the end of the lesson is normally a time to clearly articulate what an individual must do to be saved. To hear the gospel, to believe it, to repent and to confess and to be immersed in water, to rise, to walk in newness of life. And that's normally one of the things that we're emphasizing as we extend this invitation. But sometimes if we're not careful, it's misleading and problematic. It can be. There have been occasions where people walk in off the street and they hear this invitation and immediately they want to be baptized, having no prior knowledge to what the New Testament says or ready to bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. And we may do them a bad deal. They're not going to be baptized right then and there, not scripturally. And so this idea of being invited to do that, we may need to on occasion modify the words and say, we'd be happy to further study with you, which I've heard done here. But we want to help you is the point. And if an individual wants to be baptized, that would be a good time to do it. But. We also see people being baptized in private in the New Testament. Think about the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, 26 through 40. Sometimes the invitation is extended. One of the major reasons is in order for a person to hear the gospel plan of salvation and obey it. But that's not the only one. Sometimes an individual wants to come home to God in repentance. Repentance, as it's defined in the New Testament, is a change of heart, which leads to a change of action. If done right, the person has already repented at their seat. And what they're doing in that moment publicly is to proclaim to the brethren that I'm back in the light with Jesus Christ. I'm back on God's team. I don't know of another way to do that so that everybody knows that this individual has responded. They want to be right. They want to get back right with God. And so they're saying as loud as my disobedience has been, maybe people know that I've been away. God's forgiven me, but I just want the prayers of the elders. I want the prayers of the congregation. And I want you guys to know that I've turned around and I want to, again, walk in the light. First John one, five through nine. And the invitation would be a good time to do that. And sometimes there's this question. Do my sins need does my sentence need to be as public as. And that's a good practice. That's a helpful practice. But it's not mandated in Scripture. It's not in the Bible. In fact, sometimes a silence. 
publicly so that other individuals can help and can offer up prayer. The invitation may be to restore someone to faithfulness. And then the third category for the invitation may not be a person that's struggling in sin or that needs to obey the gospel, just may need help in the prayers of the church. If we begin to look at the invitation as people that are in trouble or people that have done wrong, we may rob ourselves of one of the greatest blessings of this tradition of publicly responding. So far as I can tell, one of the blessings of the invitation is everybody's gathered here together and a person may be broken or going through hardship and difficulty. And the greatest number of their brethren at the local congregation are present in one moment. And what they're saying is, I need you all to pray for me. That's one of the reasons for the invitation. There may be no sin involved, but I'm struggling with doubt or I'm afraid or there's an upcoming test and I pray privately. But I really want to throw myself on God's mercy and I want you all to join me as well. And in those moments, the invitation is used for that. It's a good expedient. It's a way that we can say to individuals at the conclusion of lessons, whatever your spiritual need is, if you want to make that publicly known, we would like to help you. That's the purpose of the invitation. There may be other ways to address individual spiritual needs. And if we find more expedient and God honoring ways to do that, we shouldn't hesitate to adopt those. Sometimes it's said about a person, oh, that brother there, he may not be sound. He didn't include the invitation at the end of his lesson. If that's true. Peter and Paul must also be thrown in that camp because they never extended one either. So far as we see in the New Testament, it's our tradition. It's not a bad one. It can be helpful. And it's our goal to merely extend our spiritual arms and say, we want to help you. Thank you for your questions tonight. I hope that what we've done has helped all of us to be better Bible students. Sometimes questions and answers beget more questions. And so it's Neil's turn next week. Give them all you've got. I hope we've been encouraged tonight. If there's questions about anything that we've said tonight, we don't think we have all the answers. We do believe that the Bible does. And if we can help you to parse something out or study something, you say, Hiram, you misspoke there. I disagree with that. I'd be happy to calmly, patiently try to study with you what I believe the New Testament says on these matters. But maybe tonight someone would like to respond to the invitation that we just talked about and obey the gospel, to be baptized, to have their sins washed away. You've studied the New Testament, or you'd be interested in studying with us so that you might draw near to God and know what God would have us all to do to be in harmony with his will. If we can pray for you, pray with you. If you're hurting tonight, one of our elders will be down here ready to receive you. We're going to stand and sing a song to encourage us. If we can help you, come now together, stand and sing.